Now, many of you did not expect to wake up this morning and go to a therapy session. You came to church. That being said, I'd encourage you to take notes today because it may just be that. <laughs> it will be a good morning in the Word of God together. Um, before we start, though, I want to tell a story. When I was 19, um, so I grew up in this village in Walden Lake. And when I was 19, we, I was working at a camp, Pleasant Valley Bible Camp. We invited a bunch of the counselors over to our house that summer. A little nice weekend, relaxing time after a long summer. And I was feeling kind of macho, like this is my house that I invited my friends to. So let me go take them out on the boat, right? And I had my boater's license for like seven years by that point. So I was basically an expert. And by the time we get out to the boat, it's like, wow, we don't have enough room in our boat to fit everybody. So we just split them up. We had the guys and the girls. And if you know this story, it's a pretty embarrassing story for me, by the way. Um, I took the guys out. And I'm trying to like show off, be all macho, right? And um, we're tubing. It's a great day for tubing. A little choppy, but not too bad. It's nice and sunny. And we're going. And if you have ever been on a tube, generally you've experienced this from the driver. that They want to try to knock you off the tube. It's really fun for the driver to do that, right? And so I'm driving. And I'm trying really hard to knock everybody off. We had a great time. We pull into the dock. We're going to switch, get the girls on. Guys are going to go do something else. Obviously, my total method changes. There's a different way to be impressive in that situation. Uh, and so I'm trying to like think about how do I have like a calm, you know, um, calm ride for them, enjoyable time, not trying to make it too crazy. You take them to the south arm, it'll be a little bit calmer. And so we get them on and I'm back in the boat out. And if you know anything about boating, you don't want the motor to drag in the water, or on the ground, I'm sorry, while you're backing out of the dock because the water's shallow. You could easily get the motor stuck. And so I have everybody move to the front of the boat, and I'm backing out, keep the motor above the ground, and I turn around, point the nose into the rest of the sea, humongous ocean called Walloon Lake. But for real, it felt like that in that moment because what I forgot to do, my ego kind of like blinded me for a moment. I forgot to have everybody redistribute the weight. So they're still all sitting in the front of the boat. And just as I push the throttle down, this huge wave just eats the bow of the boat. And I'm just praying for like what felt like an eternity to like, please scoop this wave, please scoop this wave, please scoop this wave. And it didn't. It just was like, and all I see in that moment was the person sitting in the front of the boat up to here in water with this like look of like, shock and confusion on her face and instantly everybody's hands goes up because they still have their cell phones and their cameras and their purses with them like ladies why do you bring your purse on the boat but I knew it was a bad moment when I started to see the the boat chairs floating away and their paychecks floating away <laughs> and my uh, boater's license floating away, and and in that moment, I was just thinking, oh no, what are we going to do to salvage this? How can I like rescue as much of this as possible? And uh, to make a long story short, there's some very helpful people near the shore that came out. They saw what happened, and they got the ladies on the boat, and then they came back out, and they kind of dragged the boat back to the dock underwater. We got it eventually up onto the trailer, and it was draining for days. The we pulled the plug and it was just like, man, it looked like our front yard had a flood because it was just draining for so long. Um, needless to say, as much as we would have liked, we actually couldn't salvage it because that boat was ruined in far more ways than one, right? It, it was too old and too broken down and too waterlogged for really anything to be restored other than we saved the motor. Um, so what we did was we actually, the next week, we took it to Concord Academy Boyne. We donated it. We dug like a 15-foot-long hole in the ground, and we sunk the boat into it, filled it in with sand. It became a glorified sandbox. It was pretty cool, pretty fun. Um, but here's the point. Similarly, in this world, we experience brokenness in more ways than one. And the question that we often wonder about is the way to fix it. How do we deal with, how do we fix, how do we, how do we solve the problems that we're experiencing in the ways that we've experienced brokenness in this world? Is there any way to avoid feeling the effects of pain and grief and misery and brokenness here on planet Earth? 
See, God himself designed us to experience peace and relational harmony primarily in four ways. And the Bible refers to this concept as shalom, God's peace. God experienced us to experience relational harmony and rightness in our relationship with him, in our relationship with each other, in our relationship with ourselves, and also in our relationship with all of creation. This is how things ought to be. This is the way things should be. This is shalom, the biblical concept of peace. But when sin entered the world in Genesis 3, all of that was profoundly affected. In fact, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death came to all people, because all sin. And this is why sin is so significant. That not only do we feel its effects as it mars our relationship with God, but sin also brings brokenness and separation in every other area in this world, even though we may not be directly affected. Sin ruins our relationship with ourselves. Sin ruins our relationship with each other. And sin even ruins our relationship with this world. I mean, Genesis 3, 17, we hear God say to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. And this, this is why I say that because of sin and its resulting brokenness, we all, every single one of us, deals with, at some level, pain and sorrow in grief in this fallen world. We feel grief, we feel sorrow, and we long for God's shalom, God's perfect peace. We long for that, but while we live in this fallen world, here's the question, how do we live as God's people? What does the culture of the kingdom of heaven look like while we are here on this sin-sick planet? And this is what Jesus specifically speaks to as he opens his famous Sermon on the Mount. As we've been looking at the Beatitudes, Jesus lists out nine blessings for those in the kingdom of heaven. It, it, it describes the culture of what it's like to be in God's kingdom and to operate as God's people. And as we've been seeing this, we see Jesus shift the paradigm of how they saw their world and how they actually perceived God. He shifts the way that they see everything in their life. And specifically this morning, we're looking at the second blessing he pronounces in verse 4 of Matthew 5. The blessing for those who mourn. There is a blessing that Jesus speaks to that is specifically for those who have felt the effects of sin and brokenness and loss and pain and sorrow and grief. Would you pray with me? God, I, I pray that this morning as we enter into your word, I pray that you would soften our hearts to receive the word implanted into our souls. And for many of us who have pushed different effects or aspects of sorrow and grief deep down. Lord, I actually pray this morning that you would unlock that and help bring that to the surface so that you may comfort us. Lord, I pray that your spirit this morning would individually impact each one of us from your word in the way that you have sent your word out this morning. I pray that you would speak your powerful, eternal, life-giving words through my finite lips this morning. And that each one of us will be drawn closer to you and comforted by you today. Amen. Would you stand with me as we read? We're going to look at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount together. And we're going to read all the way up to the verse that we're going to study this morning. This is Matthew chapter 5. We're going to go through verses 1 through 4. It goes like this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Thank you. You can have a seat. This is the point that I really want to develop this morning. That when I can feel all of my grief 
God brings me comfort and relief. When I can feel all of my grief, that's the space that God meets me in to bring comfort and to bring healing and to bring relief. As I mentioned last week, this, this blessing, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and, and the rest of the blessing is so much more than simply feeling happy. It, this blessing is an act of divine approval in which God holds up the blessed as an example to follow. As a result, there's definitely a certain level of happiness that comes, but as we're re reading these blessings today, we are led to understand that in the kingdom, it's those who mourn who are approved of God. They're, they're held up by Jesus as an example to follow. They are the blessed. And in what way does God demonstrate his approval to them? He comforts them. Which is wonderful until you start to think about that. Because you think, if God could see me and understand everything I'm going through, and, and if he could come close to me, and if he could comfort me, then why won't he take the pain away? God, if I'm courageous enough to believe that you're here with me, how are you so oblivious to how much this hurts? Why won't you remove the pain? You see, there's actually this tension that we feel when God doesn't take the pain away. He doesn't take the brokenness away. And I'll, I'll get to that specific tension in a bit. But if you think that your faith is going to help you avoid pain. If you think that just because you've been praying faithfully. And you've been actually following Jesus courageously. If you think that your faith is actually going to prevent you from ever feeling pain, I, I hate to break it to you, you're going to be very disappointed in God very fast. See, I think often it's, it's not God who is deficient, it's our theology that is. It's, it's our perception of who God is that's often deficient. In fact, there's, there's three primary ways when it comes to dealing with pain. There's three primary ways that I think that maybe we misunderstand God, that we have wrong assumptions about pain. Number one, I think what I see is we think that bad things won't happen to good people. As if God has somehow bound himself to an obligation that he's always going to intervene in the middle of a bad day and take you out of it. And prevent the pain from happening. I think that's one wrong assumption. Another wrong assumption we make is that we think pain always means something is wrong. But what I've discovered is that God often shows up in unique ways to those who are going through bad days. There's a, there's a part of God that you actually won't experience until you go through the worst day of your life. There is, there is a special place in the heart of God that you will not reach. The, the comfort of God that you will not feel until you are mourning your pain. There's part of God you won't ever experience until you've actually gone through something really bad. We think pain always means something is wrong. And maybe that's the opportunity through which God says, I want you to know more of me. And third, we think we know best. I think that's a wrong assumption, right? You think in the moment... God, if you could just sit here and see the perspective that I have, that you would change things, that you would understand things a little differently. <laughs> Yet, not a single person here has a full view to eternity or even every factor involved in this limited moment of time like God does. And the truth of the matter is this, that you would actually choose what God chooses if you could see what God sees. There's going to be a day that you'll be able to have a full view to what God has seen. And you will in that moment go, oh God. Of course you, yes. You knew what was best. Thank you for not bowing to my limited perspective. In fact, I love this. I, I didn't discover this verse until recently. I've read it and I've just passed right past it. But in Isaiah, God speaks to Israel about how God 
sees the grand view of their timeline. He speaks through Isaiah, and he says, The righteous perish, and no one takes it to heart. This is Isaiah 57.1. No one takes it to heart that the devout are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. And yet in the moment we go, God, why did you take that person away? Why now? Why him? Why her? And is it possible that God sees something that he is preventing them from that you would long to be prevented from? And in his grace and in his mercy, God says, I know what's best. If you let God into your pain, what you'll be surprised by is the joy and the peace of God. I don't know how many funerals I've been to in my life. Those are personal family members and friends and, and mentors and heroes I looked up to. And others that I've only known for a brief amount of time. But lately it feels like there's one every other week around here. It's hard to get used to that, that gut-wrenching feeling of deep loss. And the realization that things are never going to be the same. Right? I've seen that in the eyes of a son whose dad is never coming home heard that in the shakiness of a widow's voice who is coping with the fact that this house is not meant for just me. If there's something that I would assume to be true this morning, it's that each one of us has experienced quite a bit of loss or pain, especially in the last couple of years. And for most of us, very few people can really understand how hard it's hitting us. Life is full of losses, defeats, and discouragements, and suffering, and sorrow, and trials, and tribulations. But here's the in, a couple of insights I've discovered about brokenness um, and sorrow as we navigate the losses here on earth. The first insight that I've discovered is that God actually doesn't expect me to be happy all the time. Did you realize that not even Jesus was happy all the time? Sometimes grief is the actual most appropriate response to the sorrow and pain on this planet. To the brokenness that happens on planet earth. Grief is the logical response to loss. The appropriate response to the, the hurt and the pain of life is not to fake it. It's to face it and to feel it. The Bible speaks a number of times when followers of Jesus, good people, Christian people, mourn a loss. A loss is a bad thing that happened to me, or they grieve a disappointment, which is a good thing that didn't happen to me. That they have sorrow over sin. They, they let the suffering in this world break their heart, and they feel the sadness over friends who don't know Jesus. God doesn't actually expect me to be happy all the time. Sometimes grief is the logical and appropriate response. The other thing that I've discovered is that grief is actually essential to my health. Let me level with you. If you're never sad about anything, if you always push grief away, you're either out of touch with reality, you're out of touch with your own humanity, your own feelings, or you don't love. That's the only way that you can not feel grief. Grief is essential to your health. And here's another reason why. Because you will actually never grow if you never change. You just always stay the same. That's not called growth, right? There is no change without loss. There is no loss without pain. And there is no pain without grief. Grief is essential to my health. If I'm ever going to grow and become the person that God has designed me to be, or even just become the person that I want to be. At any level of growth, you will feel grief. But it's a healthy thing to grow. Here's the point. It's, it's healthy and appropriate to allow yourself to fully experience all the stages of grief. It really is. It's a healthy thing to go through the denial and the anger and the bargaining and the depression and then the acceptance. That's what psychologists refer to as the five stages of grief. 
And ironically, the faster that we try to get past it, the longer it takes to go through it and experience the healing on the other end. When, when I try to repress it or suppress it, I'm actually missing out on the healing that God's offered because God actually wants me to express it to friends and to confess it to him. You don't heal when you push it deeper. In fact, you heal and you even grow when you express it and you rely on help from outside yourself. Here's what I've seen. I see this a lot. That if you don't deal with your grief and your pain and your sorrow in a healthy way, if you don't let it out, you're going to act it out. If you don't let it out in healthy ways, you're going to act it out in unhealthy ways. See, some of you have experienced trauma or pain or loss at an early age of life. In fact, most of you have. Whether someone abused you, or your parents got divorced, or someone said something hurtful to you, or, or something else, and you've been carrying that with you your whole life. At the time, you did not actually have the healthy coping skills to deal with that in a healthy way. And so, instinctively, you just kind of pushed it deeper. But then you've been carrying that deep within, and you've never grieved over that hurt. You need to go back and grieve over it. Why? Because if you don't grieve the losses of life, you get stuck at that stage of your life. When pain happens to you, and you just push it deeper, and you don't go through the stages of grief and allow the time in your life to fully go through every stage of grief, what winds up happening, if you don't let yourself feel it all, you emotionally get stuck at that age in your life. And then the rest of your life you spend reacting to something that happened to you a long time ago and you're taking it out on the people around you. People God put in your life who want to love you and help you and uh, see you healed. Guys, that's not healthy. You need to go back and grieve over it. I really found it helpful the way that Pastor Rick Warren says it. He says, when I swallow my grief, my stomach keeps score. In other words, like when you swallow unhealthy emotions, you get sick. You can never truly get over grief. You have to get through it. You can't just get past grief by trying to figure out the whys of everything going on. One of the things I've learned about loss and pain in my own life and as I've helped people walk through it in their own lives, is that when I try to write the story before it's over, A, I generally write a pretty poor ending. And B, I usually end up prolonging the process of grief. And, and I just am wondering, God, when are you going to tell me why? And he's like, when are you going to give me the pen to keep writing? If you don't let yourself go through it, that's where you get stuck. So how do you get unstuck? You let God help you. You let God comfort you in your grief. Which is why I say, when I can feel all of my grief, that's when God brings me comfort and relief. I can't get to the point of letting God comfort me in something that I've been denying the whole time. And it's just going to stay down there and get worse until I allow God to unlock that, bring it to the surface, feel it all, and then let him comfort me in that. And so as I look through scripture, here's six ways that I see God comforts us in our grief. Six ways that God comforts those who mourn. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Number one, God draws me close to himself. When you're grieving, it often feels like God is very far away or he doesn't care because he can see it and he's not changing anything. But can I tell you that not everything that you feel is real and not everything that is real do you feel. God is actually much more closer to you than you would ever realize in the middle of your pain. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and to those who are crushed in spirit. It is actually probably in the point of your pain, the closest that God could ever be to you. God draws me close to himself. Number two, 
Here's how God comforts those who mourn. He gives me a church family for support. Guys, when you are engaged and active and, and, and participating in and regularly fellowshipping with the body of Christ, a local church, here's what happens. When you share a joy, it actually increases. And when you share a sorrow, we all share it, and you're able to handle it. I don't know the exact percentage. I wouldn't say it's cut in half exactly, but it's lessened. And here's the deal. Right now, everybody here finds themselves in one of two situations. You either need comforting, or if that's not you, you need to be comforting somebody. And if you find yourself in that second group where I'm like, I feel like actually right now things are going kind of good. I know someday I'm going to need some comfort, but right now it's my turn to be comforting others. Let me give you a few suggestions. Number one, never minimize someone else's pain. Here's a way to do that. Cut the word at least out of your vocabulary when dealing with someone who's hurting. I heard a story recently of a woman who was grieving for a miscarriage and an older lady trying to comfort her, trying to help the pain not feel so intimidating, said, well, at least you're young enough to have kids again. I don't want it. I want the one I lost. I get that the intention is to help the person feel like their pain is not that overwhelming, but that actually comes across as insensitive. Don't use the word at least when comforting somebody. Second thing is don't start by pointing fingers. When rushing in to help someone's pain looks a lot more like assigning blame for the problem, it doesn't come across as help. They don't feel helped, and at worst they feel attacked. So let's, let's cut out the blame shifting. When someone's actually hurting, Let's not point the finger at who's to blame, at least not immediately. Number three, never rush people. Grief takes time, and you need to allow that process to happen, even when it's around you. I get that someone else's grief might possibly be inconvenient for you. This is where, as the church, we live in grace. We love like Jesus. Don't rush people through their grief. Don't, don't be part of the process that gets them stuck at that point in their life. The church, the body of believers, those who have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, we should be the best place where people find healing and hope and support in the comfort of God. Probably the best place for someone to experience a medical issue uh, healed is either in a hospital or in the presence of someone who, who knows how to apply the right stuff at the right time. But for all the other things that wound us, emotionally, socially, especially spiritually, healing happens best in community. And especially in the community of people indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the local church. We are better together. We are. I loved how Pastor John preached about this a couple weeks ago, but can I just encourage you again, make another plug? You need a life group. He said, we're created for connection, but we often tend towards separation, especially when life hurts. But we need to fight the separation. Why? Because everybody needs Jesus, everybody needs somebody, and somebody needs you. Your story does have power. So, number one, God draws me close to himself. Number two, this is how God comforts us. He gives me a church family for support. Number three, God uses grief to help me grow. God uses my grief actually to bring me into a greater view of what my life is all about. He, he brings me into something that is actually not possible unless I went through something that was pretty hard. And God does this in a few different ways. Number one, he uses pain and grief to get our attention. I love how C.S. Lewis said this. He said that pain is God's megaphone. God whispers to us in our pleasures but he shouts to us in our pain. It's often in the moments where we're hurting the most that we're actually most aware of what God wants to do in our lives and, and open to what God has to say. I tell you one thing, people are not listening to the preacher that much at weddings. 
but there's a lot of hope found in a sermon at a funeral. God shouts to us in our pain. God also uses pain to bring good out of bad. We know that in all things, Romans 8, 28, not that God sent all things, but in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And God uses pain to prepare us for eternity. Did you realize that? That the, the difficulty that I'm going through right now is actually preparing me for heaven? Check this out. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 17, 18. For our light and momentary troubles. God, how can you call this light and momentary? This hurts. And he's saying, if you had a view to all of eternity, you'd call it the same thing. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That's why we don't fix our eyes on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. God uses grief to help me grow. Fourth, and I don't know if this is the most important or just tied for first, but it's up there. God gives me the hope of heaven. Guys, this life is not all there is. There is so much more. The life we have here on earth is extremely small. Can I promise you that? This is a blip in the era of time that you will be living called eternity. This life is extremely small compared to the eternal bliss that you will be experiencing in the presence of God. And if I did not have that hope, if I did not have the hope of heaven, probably more times than one, I would have spiraled down into the deepest pit of despair. And can I just be a little honest with you? I might not have come back. There have been points in my life that the only thing that kept me waking up every day was the fact that it gets better. Someday. But this is not all that there is. That I can see at least one thing on the horizon, and that is the hope of heaven. I love what 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says. Paul says to the, his uh, brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, he says, Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. This is the difference that Jesus makes. We see this especially at funerals. Those who are grieving with no hope and those who are grieving with hope. There's been a lot of these funerals around here lately. There's a massive difference between those who have hope after life and those who are in despair, who have no hope. One of the passages that I cling to most when grieving, and I offer this readily to those who are in pain, is Revelation 21, 3-4. God reveals to John... He said, and this is what John writes, I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people and he will dwell with them. The question that begs asking is, what is that like? What is it like when God's dwelling place is now right among us? Here it is. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I am looking forward to that day so much. I am longing for that day. In fact, that day is one of the things that I believe balances out the problem of pain. You may have heard something like this, the classical argument that says something along the lines of, how can God be all-loving and all-powerful and still allow suffering to happen? You ever heard something like that? You're like, I, I can see that if, God is all-loving and he's good, but he's not all-powerful. He wouldn't be able to take suffering away, even though he wants to. On the other hand, if God is not all-loving and he's not good, he's malevolent, but he is all-powerful, he'd be able to take suffering away, but he probably just doesn't want to because he's not good. But I have a hard time believing that if God is all-loving and all-powerful as the Bible reveals him to be, then why on planet earth does suffering still exist? A God like that must not exist. Now, without breaking down the list of fallacies with this particular argument, one shortcoming stands out that's relevant for today, and it's this. That God is not all, only all-loving and all-powerful, he is also all-knowing. 
And he has an omniscient, all-knowing view of time. And he can see the day when what seems like moral imbalances in our world will be completely and totally made right. All wrongs will be corrected. All sin will be dealt with. All sinners will be purged from existence. And perfect love and perfect justice will prevail. And this time that we are in, what we are waiting for that day to come, is called grace. God is graciously delaying his justice so that more undeserving sinners like you and like me would have eyes opened up and receive God's mercy. Someday, please don't get this twisted. Someday, every evil and injustice and moral imbalance and every form of suffering will be dealt with. All the wrongs of this world will be made right. And the fact that God has not done that yet is actually called mercy. The thing that helps me deal with pain sometimes is the fact that God gives me the hope of heaven. That even while I'm still here suffering, experiencing grief, there's a day where everything will be made right. I have the hope of heaven. Number five, God uses my pain to help others. And this is the beauty of the redemption of God. That God does not want your pain to go to waste. See, some of your greatest life's blessings and purpose arise out of your deepest hurt. In the beauty of God's redemption, he often takes the ashes of our lives and turns it into beauty as we Receive the comfort of God and we pass it on to others. Right now, you either need help or you need to be helping others. You need comfort or you need to be comforting others. And maybe, just maybe, God wants to do both in your life. See, if you want to wait until the day when you're fully healed to then begin to help others heal, you're going to be waiting a very long time. But somehow in the beauty of God's redemption, God uses our efforts to comfort others as part of the very process through which he is healing us. God uses my pain to help others. In number six, God grieves with me. When God sees inhumanity on earth, he weeps. When God sees sin, he weeps. When God sees wars destroying people and this planet being ruined, he weeps. He grieves over those things. Our God is a suffering God and a sympathetic God. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about the Messiah, about Jesus. And in it, it specifically says this, that Jesus, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And then in Hebrews 4.15, we're told about Jesus. We don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize and sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. He's a suffering God, and he's a sympathetic God. He is not aloof. He is not apathetic. He is not absent. He is in the pain, suffering with us. There will never be a moment where Jesus looks at your situation and is confused and confounded or frankly even learns anything. He's seen it all. He knows it all. He feels it all. Then why doesn't he fix it? God, if you're here, why don't you do something? Why don't you give me answers? Because it's often the silent presence of a close friend that is the most precious for the one who grieves. And Jesus is sitting here weeping with us. The pain that you feel in that separation, he feels it. The pain that you feel in that rejection, he feels it. 
The pain that you feel in that loss, God feels it. The pain you feel in loneliness, God feels it. The pain you feel in that embarrassment, God feels it. God grieves with us. One of the songs that's become most precious to me in times when I grieve is a song written by Wren Collective called Weep With Me. Um, and I was going to read you the words, but Pastor Andy and I were talking this week about grief and pain and, and what's helpful and what's not helpful. And I really want you to feel the comfort of God in this moment. Uh, so Pastor Andy actually offered to sing this song. And I want to encourage you with this. As he sings... Would you just sit back and listen? Just let God speak to you. Let his comfort wash over you as you become aware of his presence in your pain. I'll get back up after he's done with this song, but um, I want to encourage you, just receive from God in this moment. Turn my lament into love. 
and from this lament raise up an anthem yet I will praise you yet I will sing of your name right here in the shadows here I will offer my praise what's true in the light still true in the dark you're good and you're kind and you care for this heart Lord I believe but you weep with me go through pain, when you go through grief, God weeps with you. I'm going to give you four helpful things to do and I'll be done. Number one, when you go through pain and grief, resist the urge to run away or numb out. It's healthy to feel it. Number two, refocus on what's happening in me and not what's happening to me. And my perspective sometimes is a big difference maker and how far down I go in despair, or how much I can hold on to what's true. Even in the light, it's still true in the dark. God, help me to learn what you're teaching me. If, if I don't learn to pray that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to delay my answer. I'm going to slow the growth process down when I'm begging God to take it away. When I'm trying to write the story before it's over. Number three, remember that God always delivers. He always has. God, he currently is, and he always will. The best predictor of God's present help is his past faithfulness. And as I fix my attention on what God has done, my confidence is boosted for what God has yet to do. See, it's gratefulness that helps me remember that God is still faithful today. And number four, I need to rely on solid relationships. Rely on solid relationships. See, I would really encourage you to get in a life group. And if you have already been in a life group, I'd encourage you, swap phone numbers with each other within your life group. It's a great way to rely on each other. Why? Because when I can feel all of my grief, that's when God enters in. That's when he meets me right there. And he brings comfort and relief. Jesus, I pray that you would open up something inside of our hearts that allows you in unlock something deep in us. And Lord, I pray that you would comfort us in the middle of that, even today. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Brad. We're going to dismiss you at this time. If you'd like to stay, we're going to sing it as well with my soul. So if you want to stay and, uh, stay and sing that with us, we're going to do that right now. So if you need to leave, feel free to do that. Try
Good to see you guys today. Be blessed as you go in your comings and goings. Amen.